Hello, I'm Drew Catt, a Choices Director of State Research and Special Projects. Today, I'm in the studio to speak with Brian Casita. Brian is an assistant professor in the Truman School of Public Affairs at the University of Missouri, and, along with Tomas Moranes and Matt Chingos of the Urban Institute, is co-author of the report, When is a School Segregated? Making Sense of Segregation 65 Years After Brown v. Board of Education. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today, Brian. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, well, let's jump right in. Would you start by telling us about this research and what inspired it, and what ultimately were you hoping to learn? Sure. So, like I think many research projects, it was kind of just inspired by dissatisfaction with the current state of research on this area. And, you know, this is a long issue that we've been dealing with in the United States when we call a school segregated. And for, you know, a hundred years or more, whether or not a school was segregated was a matter of a, a law. It was a legal definition because we had de jure segregation in this country and there was sort of no ambiguity uh, what segregation meant. And post Brown versus Board, when we started making some attempts to integrate our schools, you know, no longer did we have such clear 100%, you know, minority schools and 100% white schools. It ended up being more of a matter of degrees of segregation. But our language around this has not really changed. And since, you know, Brown versus Board of Education, for 65 years, we've still used this kind of binary language to apply the designation of segregation to schools. And so we're kind of dissatisfied with this, you know, binary measure, you know, sort of like a school is segregated or isn't segregated, when really it's a matter of degrees. You know, there's also problems with kind of using these types of measures because typically what they incorporate is some sort of arbitrary cutoff. It might be if there's 90% minority students in a community or in a school, I mean, that we, you know, researchers have said, okay, this is a segregated school. But we have increasingly diverse population of students. It's now a majority of students in the United States identify as ethnic minorities. So as communities increasingly look more and more diverse, there's a mismatch between that and labeling a school as being segregated using these sort of arbitrary measures. Yeah, that's fascinating. And would you mind, so you talked about the du jour segregation, would you mind touching on the difference between absolute versus relative measures of segregation and kind of getting more into those degrees of segregation that you talked about? Sure, right. That's a great segue from sort of like where we were having issues with the binary measures. So when we talk about these binary measures of segregation, we're talking about what falls into this category of an absolute measure. And in the segregation literature, there's really two types of ways of thinking about segregation. There's absolute measures and there are relative measures. So an absolute measure, like I mentioned, might be this sort of measure that says, okay, 90% minority, therefore this is a segregated school. There's no sort of distinction between, you know, a school that's 90% versus a school that's 99%. There's no consideration of what type of neighborhood that school might be in or what kind of city that school might be in. Perhaps it's, as we see in many neighborhoods and cities in this country, perhaps it's in a high minority neighborhood or city. And the fact that there's a lot of minority students there only reflects that. And so this is one of the problems with these absolute measures. They're also difficult to use over time because over time we've increasingly um, had more diversity in America. So You know, there's a plethora of studies out there that have said segregation has been increasing over the last 20 or 30 years. Well, that's only true if we look at absolute measures. And part of the problem there is, well, 
we have an increasingly diverse population, so that actually makes it look like schools are more segregated using these absolute measures. And then there's also a problem comparing across different regions and geographical units because if if I'm comparing a school in Idaho to a school in Southern California, clearly there's a different population of students that those schools can draw from, but those absolute measures wouldn't pick that up. I'll segue that to this idea of a relative measure. So a relative measure of segregation looks at how a population of students in a community is distributed among the schools in that community. And so Right off the bat, that's taking into account what the community looks like and then asking how are the students distributed across this community. And so we have measures like the dissimilarity index, the variance ratio index, these relative measures that allow us to take into account these other aspects. These become much more useful when it comes to comparing schools across time because when we're looking at this relative measure, we're able to adjust for the underlying population of students. And, you know, one of the facts in the literature out there is when we use relative measures, schools are not more segregated today than they were 20 or 30 years ago. In fact, segregation seems to have decreased a little bit. So the way that you choose these measures matters quite a bit. Maybe the biggest sort of like problem with the relative measures is they're not as user-friendly. It's a little bit more difficult to understand conceptually than a binary measure of this is a segregated school and this is not a segregated school. But most importantly, there are measures that apply to school systems. When I use a relative measure, I'm saying, what is the relative segregation level in the city of Los Angeles or the city of Indianapolis? But it's not a measure that applies to schools because it's like as you as a, it's a relative measure. There's no there's no sort of way to break it down to the school level. And I think this is this is a problem. I think conceptually for us, for people wanting to understand this, because we're used to thinking about schools being segregated, not school systems being segregated. So this is the difficulty in the relative versus absolute distinction in measuring school segregation. I'm glad that you brought up the dissimilarity index or the DI, which is something that I've I've seen used in previous research and read about in other reports, but I was fascinated by the segregation contribution index that y'all used in the report. So would you mind explaining to our listeners what this is and why it's integral to this research? Sure. That's a perfect segue from what I was discussing with the, you know, sort of with the shortcomings with relative measures. Like I said, we would prefer relative measures because of the qualities that they have taking into account the underlying population, but they don't apply to schools. And we wanted to produce something that we thought would be helpful to policymakers. And policymakers, if you tell a policymaker your district or your town is segregated, there's not a whole lot they can do with that. They really want to be able to think about what is happening at the school level. So what we did with the segregation contribution index is we took a relative measure, the dissimilarity index in this case, and we decomposed it to the school level. So what we're actually doing with the segregation contribution index is we're not saying, is a school segregated or not? which we think is overly simplistic, but we're saying how much does a school contribute to segregation in that system? Most schools aren't going to contribute a lot. You, you know, the, a school's going to only contribute 1% or 2% to the total system level of segregation. We're going to set segregation in a system to be, you know, 100%. There is a definite amount of segregation that exists in a community, and we disaggregate it to the school level, which brings us back to that more intuitive way of thinking about things. 
so people can think about, okay, where are the schools that are segregated? But in this case, they're going to be able to answer the question, which schools are contributing the most to segregation in my community? It has properties that are, I think, still better than the absolute binary way of thinking about things because it's a continuous measure. We're going to have some schools that contribute 2%, 3%, 5%, and we're going to have some schools that contribute less than 1%. And our hope is that by doing this, policymakers are actually equipped with a tool that they can then use to proactively remedy segregation. So you talked about how different sectors a little bit, or at least kind of started to lead into discussion of the results. So so y'all did look at different sectors of schooling that were included in your study. So what sectors kind of did you focus on and how did the different results by sector shake out? Sure. So we look at traditional public schools, we look at charter schools, and we actually include private schools, which to my knowledge is, you know, something that's been pretty much ignored in the segregation literature, largely because I think you know, there's just a belief that they're kind of outside of the system and there's not a whole lot of policy levers, you know, to deal with that. But when we sort of like look at every, you know, we do, we do this for all the school communities in the country and we sort of like, you know, take a view from 30,000 feet, it's like, okay, well, because public schools serve the majority of students in this country and tend to be larger, you know, on average, uh, 81% of K-5 students are in public schools. Public schools account for 76% of the segregation in our school contribution index. So a little bit less than their actual share of students. Charter schools also track pretty closely to their percentage of students. So we estimate in our sample they're serving about 8% of the students and they're accounting for only about 9% of the segregation. But it's private schools where we find that those numbers actually get out of whack in the other direction where charter schools, you know, even though they're only around 11% of the K-5 population that in our sample, they're contributing 15% to segregation. So just like on average, their share of segregation is higher than their share of students. And so this is, you know, something that I think is important to shed a light on. We actually do have a second step of this in our paper where we look at sectors in a different way. So we actually take our school contribution index which is just kind of like a raw measure of where is segregation attributable to, but we break it down into neighborhood characteristics as well. And so the way that we define this is that we define a neighborhood for a school, and we ask, well, you know, look, we, we know that there's this constraint that schools have that they can only draw from students within some reasonable area before transportation issues would be too large. So we define this neighborhood that's this reasonable travel distance. And we look at the demographics of that neighborhood. And then we, you know, this is kind of like an addition that we do to the school contribution index. We ask, well, given your neighborhood, are you an integrating school or a segregating school? Meaning, are you more likely to look like your neighborhood in a way that makes you look more integrated, judging by the system as a whole? Or are you actually increasing segregation relative to your neighborhood? It's a bit complicated, I think, probably just to describe over the phone, but anybody can access the report at the Urban Institute website, and I think I think we explain it a little bit better. But look, the bottom line, you know, when you do this is that most schools actually look like their neighborhoods. And, you know, other people have looked at this research and said, yeah, I mean, you know, 90% of schools look just almost just like their neighborhoods. When we look at public schools, 
they especially you know tend to look like their neighborhoods it makes sense because public schools have boundaries that are drawn to you know collect the students that are in that area so public schools tend to look very much like their neighborhoods charter schools actually also look very much like their neighborhoods but they diverge more so a charter school is equally likely to have more minority students than the neighborhood would suggest or fewer minority students than the neighborhood would suggest but the you know the story here is that it's symmetrical this also makes sense charter schools are drawing from a larger boundary they're not constrained by school attendance boundaries so it's more likely that they're going to diverge somewhat from their neighborhood and then private schools actually diverge from their neighborhoods in ways that are different than public schools and charter schools they diverge from their neighborhoods in an asymmetrical way the bottom line is that they tend to be whiter and when we look at this into just sort of like you know where is this happening when we look at urban schools schools in urban areas private schools and charter schools and traditional public schools all tend to diverge from their neighborhoods in ways that are fairly neutral actually when we look at neighborhoods with low black and hispanic representation that we find that private schools actually 81% of them tend to have fewer black and hispanic students than the surrounding neighborhoods which we find to be a quite striking result yeah and i'm sure that it matters when you're using different definitions of what a neighborhood is it's like i'm on the board of a school here in town and you know getting ready to roll out incoming freshman class and we're just really talking about okay is the neighborhood just the district or being an area where both inter and intra district transfers are very commonplace is it okay are we looking at just a five minute drive time ten minute drive time what's what's the actual catchment area of the school when you have all of these various methods of choosing schools and accessing those schools so I was glad that you did group schools into more than one geographic level or neighborhood looking at the the district boundaries that do include those zip code catchment areas, but then also the metropolitan areas and looking at the county level. Mm-hmm. You touched on like some of the private schools are different, like here, especially in some of the rural areas, some of the private schools in the rural areas just happen to be situated right on the county line. And I've seen some charter schools uh, do the same thing. So, so would you mind explaining like why, and I think you alluded to it a fair amount, but why you looked at these different geographic levels and what differences kind of exist in the results when doing it those three different ways. Sure, absolutely. And let me be clear, and I, I apologize, I think this is I think this is a difficult topic. You know, there's there's so many terms and, and a lot to wrap your head around here, which is why we named the report Making Sense Out of Segregation. It's difficult to make sense out of this. But we actually so we have, you know, we try to define our terms carefully. So when we talk about neighborhoods, we're talking about something very local. And then when we talk about the broader things like the district or the county or the metropolitan area, we call that the system. And so when we, when, you know, earlier when I alluded to differences based on neighborhood characteristics, we're talking about something like a two to three mile radius around the school. And that's where we find that private schools tend to not look like their neighborhoods. And I'm, we're saying like in a very local way. The broader issue when we talk about school systems you're absolutely right. It's also important, and it's going to matter in the grand scheme of how this shakes out. It doesn't matter a lot, but it ends up mattering in some important ways. So when we build the basic school contribution index, we do this at the district level, the county level, and the metropolitan area level. And that's in order typically from smallest to largest. And 
you know, the basic findings, you know, even the sort of like the descriptive statistics that I mentioned in the beginning are that private schools tend to account for more segregation than their share and charter schools do, but just slightly, and public schools look pretty neutral. Those are based off of the county level estimates. Those results also hold if we define the school system as the district. But when we define the school system as the metropolitan area, the results actually do change slightly. Public schools tend to, traditional public schools, like that, that result doesn't really change. But the actually the sign on charter schools actually flips. So this is maybe difficult to understand. But one way to think about this is that within districts or counties, controlling for school size and neighborhood composition, charters are accounting for slightly more segregation than traditional public schools within that same district. But when we expand the definition of the school system to be a metro area, the opposite is true. So when we do this, of course, one of the things that's changing when we look at the metro area is that the yardstick for what we consider segregation changes because the average demographics within the districts are not the same as the average demographics within metro areas. And so when we change this to metro area and the sort of like the sign, you know, the the charter school ends up actually contributing to integration, not in a causal way, this is just descriptive research, but what the result is telling us is that charters tend to look more like the metro areas in which they reside, whereas traditional public schools tend to look more like the districts in which they reside. And again, that is intuitively makes sense. The traditional public schools are confined to enrolling schools within a certain district, so you know, not surprisingly, they look more like the district. Charter schools can attract students from multiple districts, so when we change the yardstick to be the metro-level area demographics, charter schools tend to look more like the metro area. And look, I think this is, you know, I think this is kind of like mixed evidence that, you know, whether you're an opponent or an advocate of charter schools, you may pick which statistic that you think is right. But, you know, I think it's a nuanced story. And we actually have, a you know, another paper where we do provide causal estimates of the effect of charter schools on school segregation. And in that paper, which tries to use a causal framework, we actually find results that look like these same descriptive statistics in that if we look at the district level, charter schools tend to look like they're increasing segregation. But then when we look at the metro level, they seem to be decreasing segregation. And the mechanism here seems to be that they're pulling schools from multiple districts, and that can have an integrative effect, you know, kind of like a uh, a not well-known, you know, fact about school segregation is that it's actually, you know, two-thirds of segregation in this country, by some estimates, occur between districts, not within districts. Districts tend to be more homogenous. This is, you know, the way it's shaken out through years of residential segregation. But between districts, you know, largely white districts right next to largely minority districts, that's where we see most of the segregation in the U.S. So it's not surprising that schools that are drawing from multiple districts might have that effect. All that said, while the effects for private schools, the amount that they contribute is smaller when we look at the metro area, they are still significantly higher than the other schools, even when we use the metro area. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the difference across district lines. I actually did an event here in Indy uh Back in February 2019, partnering with EdBuild, looking at the differences across uh, attendance boundary lines, and then EdBuild kind of launched everything off looking at the kind of their 
national reports looking at the differences district to district. And it's, it's fascinating looking at some of the maps that they have on their website, just the, the stark differences that can exist between neighboring districts. Right. I, I agree. It's, it's, it's starting to get a little bit more traction. And I, I actually applaud EdBuild for a lot of the work that they've done on this. Um, they've definitely contributed to the conversation. Yeah, I think it, this comes down to something that I've, I've been trying to talk about here internally at EdChoice, and that's how do we define community? Which I think some of your re- this research that we're talking about kind of gets at that. Like, is the community just the area around the school? Is the community everything within the district? But kind of especially talking about charter schools, it sounds like the community might be just the, the greater area in which the charter school exists. Uh, we struggled with it as well. I mean, it's, you know, it's why in all the work that we've done on this, we typically have defined it, you know, three or four different ways because there is no set definition. And, you know, obviously the definition, you know, can change in, in so many ways. I mean, distance doesn't quite do it because, you know, you could be, you know, in, in urban areas versus rural areas, distance can, you know, doesn't really well define a community. I think it's a difficult thing, you know. Conceptually, I try to think about community being, you know, something along the lines of what where a school might reasonably be able to draw students from, you know, without bringing up, you know, insurmountable transportation issues. Because I think at the end of the day, you know, what we're trying to do with this project is we're trying to say, like, to policymakers and people interested in this, you know, where can we actually affect change? So moving away from this idea that we should be demonizing one school sector or another school sector or or just sort of like wringing our hands about a problem that seems insurmountable we want to break this down into actual you know bits of information that are small enough but yet meaningful enough that we could do something so you know one of the hopes here is that with the school contribution index you're actually able to say like okay Based off of, you know, you can define the community this way or you can define the community that way. It probably isn't going to affect much in the long run, but here's the schools that are most contributing to segregation in that community. And now you know, and now you can look at our second modification of this where we bring in the neighborhood aspects and we can say like, oh, well, look, here's a school that is contributing a lot to segregation and is even contributing more to segregation than we would expect giving its local neighborhood. There's an opportunity for integration. There's an opportunity for integration that isn't going to require massive unrealistic resources in transportation and busing issues, but maybe just right there, there are ways that we could make the system more integrated, perhaps from like just the perspective of like, here's the low-hanging fruit. Yeah, and it'd be fascinating to have someone kind of replicate this research, not looking at even all private schools, but specifically, you know, in a given state, schools participating in a private school choice program. And also, I think it would be great, you know, I don't know if you already have plans to do this, but whenever that 2020 census data comes out, which I personally have a lot of uh, potential projects built around, if kind of that would change any of the research, since there would be better block level data than necessarily the 2010 census block. Yeah, I guess I hadn't quite started thinking about that yet. But yes, you're right. The the new census data will be coming soon. We, we're using all Common Core data for the most part on this, you know, for our measures of demographics. 
But um, and then I think to your other point, like I, I agree, there are so many research questions that we could ask about this. Specifically, the one that you mentioned, I'm sure, would be important to know if there are these differences in terms of schools that are participating in a voucher program versus ones that aren't. We are going to be making all of the data publicly available, so this is something that luckily lots of people should be able to get their hands into and answer these types of important questions. Uh, yeah, that, that level of transparency and data availability is, I'm sure, going to be uh, very loved and welcomed by the research community. So, and I know I, I don't normally ask researchers to do this, but I am curious, Brian, if there was one talking point you want private school choice advocates to have around this research, what would it be? I don't know if it's a single talking point, but I would say that it's a single um, approach, perhaps, which is these are issues that we shouldn't sweep under the rug. These are issues that people from advocacy organizations on all sides should want to shine a light on so we can work to make it better. I think that confronting things like this, right, so like, look, I mean, if you're an, an advocate for private schools, you're not pleased that they're seem to be contributing more to segregation than traditional public schools. But I don't think that the reaction to that should be anything other than how do we improve it? How do we make it better? How do we shine a light on exemplary models that can take this on and be proactive in finding solutions? I think that the self-reflection that needs to happen in movements like this is more important than criticisms that occur across sectors and between sectors. And I don't think that I see you know, in my opinion, I don't see enough of this. I think that this is in some ways wrapped up a little bit with the private school choice world being also very pro-libertarian. But I don't think that being libertarian has to mean that we're agnostic on things that we should value. I understand that it means that those who adopt a more libertarian mindset towards schooling are suspicious of government coercion, that does not preclude private coercion. You know, I saw the, the recent case of the, there's a, there's a case in Baltimore, I believe, of the private school who is excluded from the voucher program for not serving LGBTQ students. And the current administration has joined the lawsuit on the side of the school. And even if we, like, hold aside the legal aspect of this, Personally, I have no problem with excluding that school if they're, if, they're, if they're discriminatory. But even if we hold aside the legal principle here and we just think about the moral principle or the, you know, what we think we, the values that the libertarian private school choice community, voucher community thinks are important, I, I don't see why it's so rare that I see positions being taken on this where we call something Here at EdChoice, we believe in school choice for all, that all families should have the opportunity to choose. But the other side of that is that all schools should have the opportunity to choose. I'm not going to stand here and say that every single school has to participate in every single program. You know, if their ideals don't align, then so be it. That's not necessarily the best for them. Right. We, we don't have to coerce them, but we can still say that. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I challenge, I like to challenge everyone, They're like, hey, all right, yeah, there are some amazing public schools, you're right, there are also some terrible public schools, there are some amazing private schools, there are also some really private schools, 
There are wonderful and terrible schools. Right. Period. Absolutely. Like, like Absolutely. it doesn't matter what sector you're talking about. Right. Well, and I and I and I guess you know just to bring it back to your general question, I don't think that you know if you're working from an advocacy perspective, that doesn't mean giving your side a free pass. In fact, I think that the best way to work from an advocacy perspective is to hold your own side accountable. Back to that lovely word, accountable. That <laughs> uh, doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be a you know a government coercion form of accountability. But there's lots of sunshine and shame that can move, you know, schools in a better direction. And I don't think that we have to be agnostic on what's better. Access is better. Yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Access by socioeconomic status, racial status, lifestyle status, any of it. Choice for all. I'm on board with that. Awesome. Brian, before we part, any last words, any forthcoming research you'd like to plug other than what we've already discussed? Sure. So this school contribution index, actually, the release of the report was kind of phase one. In 2020, we will put forth a data visualization and data exploration tool through the Urban Institute, where you will be able to go and look up your school community. You'll be able to look at how, you know, hopefully this, this you know, we're still developing it, but hopefully you'll be able to easily search out, you know, Indianapolis or South Bend, Indiana, or any whatever school community that you're interested in, and be able to look at which schools are contributing the most to segregation, whether they be public, private, or charter. And, you know, our real hope is that, you know, for one, it would be great if people used this to do additional research, but our real hope is that policymakers, school leaders, school board members, superintendents will be able to use this as a tool to start proactively looking for ways that they can achieve greater integration in their school systems with just data that helps them identify where those opportunities exist. Awesome. That is so great to hear. And yeah, the data visualization team over at Urban does a wonderful job. So really looking forward to seeing how those all look and playing around with the data myself. Yes, me too. Awesome. So thank you so much for joining today, Brian. And for always being forthright and speaking your mind. I'm very thankful for that. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. And to our listeners, be sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to them for more of our coverage of new school choice research, education reform policy chats, and more. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back soon with more Ed Choice Chats. Mm-hmm.